Hello, and welcome to Supply Chain Next. I'm your host, Richard Donaldson. Join me as we explore the ongoing evolution of supply chain, from the challenges practitioners face every day to the ongoing digital transformation of the entire value network. Welcome to the next episode of Supply Chain Next, and I am really excited to have my new friend and colleague here, Nicholas Vandeput from France on the phone, or on the line, I should say. How are you doing, Nicholas? Great, great. Thank you, Richard. Hey, well, thank you so much for being here. I know it's, uh, you know, here we are on a Friday afternoon and, and, and you've had a, uh, you know, a long week of teaching the next generation of supply chain people. Um, so, you know, we'll have, a, we'll have a fun conversation around kind of the things that you're doing and, and some of the forecasting and demand modeling that you're getting into. But would love to just start with a little bit of, of sort of an opening around, you know, who you are and, and, you know, tell everyone a little bit about your experiences and no, it's, it's, I think you've got a great tale of even coming into supply chain via Bridgestone. I mean, it looks like that was sort of a key moment for you to kind of turn into uh, what you've now become is a professor and thought leader in the area of supply chain and demand planning. Yeah, so I, I like to describe myself as simply someone who's really passionate about supply chain, specifically about inventory optimization and uh, forecasting demand. And um as you said, it, it happens that I think I was lucky enough to be just at the right time at the right place because we are a few years ago, you started to have people discussing machine learning. And back then in 2015, 16, no one really heard any of that. And it was all new. And it happens that, you know, one day I was curious and I was like, can we, can we use this thing? Can we try it out in supply chain? And what happened if we, if we try it? And it happens that it's something brand new. So it's, it's uh, yeah, it's gonna be a new generation of model. And I just started to work on it. And then I realized that I was not the first, but one of the first, and you had basically no way online to go and to, to you know, read the documentation that would really tell you, this is how you can use it so that it work, right? You have people discussing mm -hmm. machine learning, but it was a bit of a difficult to understand, but how, how do I use this for supply chain? And that's how mm -hmm. I ended up starting writing these books, saying to people, okay, you know what? It's brand new, but it's not so difficult to use it. And you can, well, achieve fine with it just with a few lines of code. Yeah, And that's yeah. how I started really to, to go in the subject. Right. And, and you know, going back to even coming out, I mean, because you're, you're, I mean, just to, just to be blunt, relatively young. I think you're about 30, 31. Um, you know, so in the grand scheme of things, you're still kind of getting going, uh, which is amazing. But, you know, it's not often that you meet people who've been in supply chain for six or seven years at the age of 30 or 31. And coming out of college, I mean, here's a question. Did you even think you were going to get into supply chain? Or, I mean, how did you even fall into it? Like, I look at your, what you graduated in, and I'm not sure you were thinking supply chain at the time. But maybe you were. I don't, yeah. You know what? Some years ago, before replying to your question, some years ago, I was at uh, Bridgestone. I think it was, you know, four years ago. And there was a young... Uh, intern student she was like 15 16 you know she was just three three days to stu just to look how people were working in real life and then she asked questions to people right. and she asked me what you're doing and i was like you know i'm responsible for the inventory optimization of tires across europe and she looked at me and she said were you dreaming about having this job when you were a kid <laughs> no i i wasn't no um at college, yes, I started to, to study uh, supply chain. And um, actually, okay. I, I love it from the start. The, the great thing about supply chain is that it's something, you know, that this is in between business and yep. qualitative thing, like, you know, marketing and these kind of things. And it's in between this, this extreme and the very pure mathematical optimization stuff that you could find in like nuclear physics, stuff that really uh, impressed me when I was 18. And then if you want to get in between and be at the same time very qualitative and quantitative, then you just get into supply chain. And actually, that's the thing I love with it is that you have people, you have process, you have collaboration, you have human. And at the same time, you get this data, this math, these algorithm. If you like both, then you end up in supply chain. Wow. So that, that I, I'll, I'll be honest, I've been doing this for a while. That's the first time I've heard someone describe it that way um, and actually compare supply chain to nuclear physics. So that's... <laughs> That's a brand new comparison, but it's it's totally apropos, right? So so, and I think you're absolutely right that there's a lot of qualitative and quantitative aspects to supply chain. It is kind of the biggest thing in business that most people haven't spoken about for years. That all of a sudden becoming front and center right now, especially with COVID. But let me let me dig a little bit deeper into that because you obviously have drifted into more of the planning 
mathematics, forecasting, and some of the higher end stuff. But even on the qualitative side, you know, I mean, you could say quantitatively, you could have gotten into the banking or derivatives markets or finance or you know some other traditional space, you know, spaces. So, you know, what was it about supply chain that kind of stood out? I mean, every time I think about math and business, I usually think uh, quantitative analytics in, in banking or something like that, not necessarily supply chain. I don't know. That, that's a really good question. I actually okay. realized that maybe, no, I, I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm interested in so many fields and I, I really like to read books about all, all of these kind of things, especially um, the mix between psychology, economic. So yep. maybe in another life, we would be discussing here economic and psychology about, I don't know what PhD I would have done on the subject. Right. But in this specific life, I'm into uh, supply chain and I, I do love it, but that's yeah. not to say that you don't have so many other very interesting subjects. Right, right. Okay, okay, fair, fair, fair. So let's 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 talk a little bit about, because um, it sounds like Bridgestone leading to where you, um, you know, you've got a couple books under your belt, we'll get to that. Um, but at Bridgestone, that seemed to be the real, moment in those three or four years where you really kind of got your hands around global inventory management. And that was when the light bulb really, you know, kind of went off and you, you began to really specialize and go deep into uh, demand and forecast planning for supply chain. So, so talk a little bit about that. What, what, what were you doing there? Um, Cause that's a big deal. I mean, global, global inventory for Bridgestone is, is not trivial. That's, that's a giant inventory to keep track of. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was really big. I always saw my years at Bridgestone as a huge playground where I was able to look at the data set and the quantitative aspect of inventory optimization and uh, demand forecasting at the same time. And I had all of this data at hand and at the same time, all of this complexity because obviously a supply chain like Bridgestone with 30, 60 warehouses across Europe and all of these lead time and complexity and product, it, it's massive. So right. it's really the kind of thing where you need 12, 18, 24 months before you can really start to see the end of it. It was amazing. And just at this time, at the same time, I said, you had the rise of machine learning. It was brand new. People right. were talking about it, but yet it wasn't clear how to use it. And that's, I took the time to experiment. And at some point it worked and I really had the revelation thinking, okay, but this is the future. I, I think I remember the first time I made, um, I used machine learning to uh, spot uh, outliers in a data set, demand outliers. I had my heartbeat went through the roof and I started to jump around the office because I was so excited about it. It really felt like, you know, you, you put some cable and at some point it touched, you get electricity and the whole thing works. And it's amazing. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. So I got you by 20 years being 50. And what you're describing for me in my early days in the 80s when I was doing original programming on the original Macintoshes, I got excited in, in when I first wrote my line of code and I could make a little pixel move across the screen. That was my heartbeat moment, right? But then fast forward 20 or 30 years and you're talking about machine learning. <laughs> as your moment. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting contrast in what we expect out of technology, but let me, let me because it's, what you bring up is not, is, is a huge topic unto itself. Machine learning and its, its application to massive data like this, right? So now that you've, you know, opened that up a little bit, how do you, because people talk, and you and I have talked about this, you know, it's a marketing term, machine learning, but it's not very well defined by most people. How do you explain to people what machine learning is? Let's just talk about that for a second. And then how do you actually apply it in a way that it actually has a real outcome? Well, it's, it's a good question because I, I've never been a person of definition. And I always yeah. like to say, you know what, when I see it, I can recognize it, but I'm not going to explain exactly what it is. What's very important with machine learning, I think, is this concept of black box that, that makes many people very nervous and not really reassured, okay, should we use a black box? Yes, no. I like to say, you know what? I suspect you do not know how your car is working, how the engine is working of your car. I, I do not know. I don't know even how my computer is working. And yet I use both and I mean, it works fine. Machine learning is the same. It's this kind of model that you're gonna bring a data set to your model and then you're just gonna hope that the model is gonna try to understand what is going in and out of this data set. Well, obviously I'm simplifying things because you need to say to the model, okay, you need to look at this kind of features and I want you to understand this kind of relationship, but yet it's really, you know, with this kind of neural network or whatever, you just bring the neural network, you show the data to it, and then you hope that after 10 minutes, the neural network figure it out. Right. Now, it sounds like magic, and it somehow 
it's close to it because it's really as soon as you have the right data set formatted in the right way, you bring the algorithm, you let the algorithm take its time with it, and then it works. But what makes people nervous is that then you cannot open the box and see like what what's happening. How come it works? Right. We, we right. do not really know. Right. Let me let me let me let me let me uh, dive in that because because one of the ones that I think people get confused on uh, is the differences between machine learning and artificial intelligence. Yeah. How do you, how do you help people navigate the differences between those two? So, I like to say to people, be be cautious of of these kind of marketing term. If today right. I would be a software vendor or a big consultancy company, I would put in huge headlines: "We do artificial intelligence," because it makes people are interested, are curious. So, if you want to sell something, I would just call it AI. Mm -hmm. There is no definition for AI, really. So anyone could do anything and call it AI, right? Right. If yep. you, you do any logic, you could still call it AI. Right. So me personally, I, I try never ever to use this word because it has no meaning. It's for me just a marketing buzzword. And I try to stay really out of that. Yep. Instead, I prefer machine learning because it's, again, despite the fact that the definition is not perfectly exact, yet if you talk about machine learning, people that use it kind of know exactly what kind of algorithm you're referring to. So it's mm -hmm. kind of clear for the data science community. If you talk about machine learning, well, we see what you're talking about. Right. Now for the people buying software, buying new tools, if you have a vendor that says it's machine learning, it's artificial intelligence, it still doesn't really say what's happening. So I would really advise you ask question, but like really yep. detailed question. Why do you call it artificial intelligence? Because right. if it's just, you know, a yes, no logic, that's not what I call artificial intelligence. Right, right, right. And 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 you know, I, I I agree with you as well too. Right, the we simplify things down to terms that sometimes become the terms themselves become meaningless because they have no definition. Right, and machine learning and artificial intelligence, you know, fall into those categories. You know, and I, you know, and I I, I struggle it with the same way you do. I like to tell people that you know the difference very simply. Uh, if you want to do it this way, is machine learning is still uh, where <clears throat> the machines require a human being to actually ask the questions, and with an artificial intelligence, the machines themselves create the questions in some respects, right? It's sort of like consciousness versus not consciousness. I mean, we can get into some really <laughs> abstract philosophical discussions uh, about it, but uh, you know, uh, it, it tends to help people is there's, you know, machine learning is a little bit more, you know, requires people to tell it what to do, but then it'll go do it, you know, crunch big data sets, you know, you know, do the models, but whereas AI is more of a, it will figure it out on its own. I don't even think we know, I don't think we've really seen AI to an extent, let's put it that way, other than science fiction movies, um, kind of to your point, we talk about it, but you know, no one really knows what it is because what the hell is a conscious machine? <laughs> you know, well, I, I like your definition. It's interesting to find that, you know, when, when I start to discuss about machine learning with practitioner in supply chain that just heard the term, but have really no idea what's behind, I try to explain it. And you get two types of reaction. Either people get so optimistic about it that they find that at some point we're going to bring some kind of magical USB key, put it in the computer, and then it's going to like light right. up and tell you what to do during the day. Right. right. This right. is not going to happen. I mean, right. right. This will not happen, at least not in the next years. Yep. Some other people just think, okay, it's a buzzword. There is really nothing to do with it. It's just the same old stuff as before under a new umbrella, but that's also untrue. Machine yep. learning is really a new set of models. But as you said, it still requires people to bring the data, transform the data, understand what is going in and out. And machine learning will not be so smart that it's going to you know, just tell you, OK, today you need to take a look at this, this, this to solve your company. No. Right, this right. Exactly, exactly. All right, well, that's, that, that's good, because we're going to come back to these in a little bit. So let's, let's go back to a little bit of, uh, if we could, Bridgestone to beginning to start to write your first book, which if I think I have this right, was about 2018 when that came out. Um, that's a big jump to go from, I, hey, I'm running global inventory to, 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 at Bridgestone to I'm going to write a book <laughs> on forecasting and planning. Uh, how did you make that transition? What, what inspired you to go in that direction? I think it's it's a composition of many different things. So since I'm, I think, 17, the first time I went to university, I saw the first teacher making a class, you know, in front of the whole classroom with 200 students. I saw that and I was like, I want to do this. I thought okay. the first time I saw it, first class university, and I was thinking, I want to do this. So from the beginning, I, I knew that I, I want to teach and share uh, ideas, right? So I yeah. started from, I think, 2014, 15, 
You know, in 2014, I was 24, I gave my first class at university at external, sharing inventory optimization ideas and, and models with students. And then a few years later, when I saw this rise of machine learning and I understood that okay, this is brand new and it's actually once you get to it, it's not so complex. So you can really share it with people. I mean, you, and that's really the point of my book. I'm saying you don't need to have a PhD to do it. You don't need yeah. to be a genius. You just code a few lines. So it's not even complex. You can do it, but there were no resources available. So I was thinking, okay, this is my time. I, I, I just need to take a bit of time to write the book about it, to explain people how it works and let's see if people like it. It happens that people do really like it. I, I received so many mails and messages from people saying, yeah, I got your book. I'm, I'm, I'm doing it right now. I'm using your code right now at this, at this company doing that. And it works yeah. and I love it. And, and with all these kind of nice messages, it really pushed me to write new books and new articles trying to help out people. Yeah, no, I, I, it's amazing. And I think I think one of the things, and, and I mean this quite sincerely, is you do represent a new generation of supply chain professionals that are coming in with fresh eyes, fresh energy, asking maybe the same questions, but with a fresh perspective, right? You're not, you don't come with the legacy baggage that a lot of supply chain, you know, professionals have, which is, this is the way I've been doing it for the last 30 years. I know it needs to get better, but I don't know how to do it. Right, um, and and and, and you know, I, I I think I think that's a it's a testament to both you the opportunity, but also speaks to um, you know I, I don't know the lack of sexiness around supply chain because there's a lot of people that come in and write books and get into marketing or economics or banking or finance. There's not as many people yet who come in and you know in the supply chain, um, and that's that's you know it it, it also speaks well to. Um, you know, the opportunity that's here, but it's, it's, you know, it's kind of the new, new thing, you know, supply chain's kind of, you know, it's, it's been around forever, but it's being re it's like being reintroduced to the world again. Like, this is what we do. Um, this is why yeah, it's important. Yeah. And you, you know, it, it, it's very interesting what you, what you said. And I, I feel it also just in my own sub niche that people like to talk about forecasting because you can easily apply machine learning to it. And then it's yeah. exciting. It's new. And it's true. It's exciting. It's new. You can beat the benchmark. You can do better than what you, we were doing five years ago it's all true but i keep on saying to people you know what we can discuss forecasting and it is important but if you want to make money what's really important is inventory optimization i mean yes. if you can reduce your inventory by 20 percent, this is how you make money right. but inventory optimization it's a really not a sexy field like no yeah. one's interested it's full of math it's difficult to understand so people prefer to stick to forecasting which is this new machine learning thing but Inventory, I'm, I'm still struggling to bring people to like, let's, let's discuss inventory instead, because this is where the money lies. Well, let, let's, all right. So, so you've, you've, you've gone in this area. So now we're going to get into the, the, the meat of it and inventory management. If, if, if we're going to put an arm, you know, a sort of a, a thing around that, but let me ask the question as I'm going to put my product hat on here for a second. So when you look at inventory management, what do you think is the goal of inventory management? What's the simple goal of an enterprise and its inventory management? If you were to put a little bit of a definition around it. But that, that's so much the exact perfect question, I think. And I'm, I'm unsure most of people can even reply to this question because right. when you ask this question, the answer is, is already so blurry right. and long because you can, I could answer a sign we should minimize the cost. I could tell you we should maximize profit or maybe we should just try to sell more or we want to achieve a certain service level and so on. And I think this question is so interesting because again, for forecasting, it's a very simple question. You just want to be accurate. I mean, right. you just right. want to be as close as you can to the target. But for inventory optimization, the first question is, but what is your target? Right. Because obviously if people tell you, I just want to have a higher service level, but well, just keep one year of inventory, you're going to achieve it, right? Right, exactly. So Inventory, and, and, and that's why I love it. It's so complex and you really we need to think about it. Like, what do we want to achieve? Let me right. ask you another question. I know it's yeah. tricky. You ask me a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Question. Yeah, yeah by, all, by all means. But I like to ask to supply chain people that says, okay, they, they say we have two months, three months of inventory. And I ask them, can you segment it? Do you know how much cycle stock you have? How much safety stock you have? Do you know if it's just do some anticipation stock? And then you see people looking at you like, I do not know, we just three months, right? right? How comes? We have no idea. Maybe two months is good. We have no clue. And that's really the proof that when we talk in, about inventory, we really lack any knowledge of what do we want to do? Why do we have so much inventory? Do we really need it? Maybe we do. I don't know. No one knows. Right. 
Right. So, so I'll, I'll come back. So, so uh, with that, so, and, and sometimes you get into the, even though the question is very <clears throat> simple to ask, what is the goal of inventory management? And as you absolutely articulate, it leads to a, sometimes a very complicated answer. But I think the challenge is, is to be the Neil Tyson or Neil deGrasse whatever that guy, the science, the, the, the guy who makes science really simple for people in the U.S. I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, seen him, Neil, uh, Neil Tyson, can't remember his name. Anyway, is inventory management or even supply chain for me <clears throat> has always been, and it's going to sound maybe almost diluted here, but the goal is to have the least amount of inventory uh, with the maximum amount of business output, right? I, I mean, again, it's very gent, you know, you can sort of triple, double, triple, quadruple click into that and what that means. But, you know, if I'm a business, you know, one, one extreme is I don't want to carry any inventory right? Because then I have no costs. Okay. Well then I can't sell anything. So obviously I can't have that. Or the point that you raise is I can go buy all the inventory in the world and sit on it, but then I only sell, you know, 2% of it. Of course that makes no sense because I'm not making money. So, you know, my goal here in supply chain is to, you know, it's just like having just enough, you know, it's like the Goldilocks kind of theme here, right? I, I, it's not too hard. It's not too soft. It's just in the middle, right? I, I, I need just enough to keep the business going. I don't want too much because then I've got carrying costs. I've got uh, uh, capital inefficiency, you know, all the things that you're talking about in inventory optimization. And of course, if I have too little, then I'm not meeting the, the requirements of the people buying things or what the business needs. But, so there's this, yeah, go ahead. You, you know, Richard, I, I worked in my inventory book. I, I went on to try to reply to the very simple basic question, how much inventory do we need? And right. Today, nowadays, if you type this online, you're gonna say, okay, you need a certain service level, and it's based on the volume or variability. So right. they're gonna do like an ABC classification, ABC, XYZ, this kind of things. And it's all gonna be about volume and variability. And they're gonna say, based on volume, variability, you need more or less inventory. This is, for me, this is such a surprise and such a simplification that makes no sense. Right. First, it doesn't take into account supply because you could have some very, unreliable suppliers that makes you, I mean, you need to have more inventory. It can Correct. be high volume, low volume item, you still need more. But something is missing there and I'm always so impressed. No one's talking about profitability or right. the fact that your client's gonna be in deep shit or trouble if you lack some inventory because in the end, you could have a high runner and your client can say, well, for us, if you're a bit late, that's all fine because we have so much of it, but then you can just remove inventory. Right. But no one is looking at that. In the book, I show that you can use some extremely simple math equation. It's just dividing the two numbers actually. So it cannot be more simpler than that to just tell you what's the optimal service level. I am amazed that today no one is using it. So it means that Academy came up with a fraction dividing two numbers to tell you this is your optimal service level based on profitability and, and the cost of missing a sale. So it's just super simple. No one's using it. Again, I'm not going to argue that theory should rule the world and then theory is 100% correct and will apply to everything. No, but yet I'm impressed that no one's using it. I, I have never witnessed anyone using this formula. And yet this could tell you like, well, you should look at 99% service level or no, this is not profitable. You should look at 80%. Instead, people will just say, you know what? High volume, high service level, low volume, low service level. So let me ask you a question. So yeah. Well, you got me thinking, you, you got me thinking again, uh, and this is why I love these conversations. Um, uh, I remember vividly when I was at eBay uh, running supply chain, uh, we went through a similar exercise, but the driver for the business there, unlike a real you know, physical product was site traffic, right? So the two things that drove our demand and forecast planning for our supply chain were um, users on the site and then um, uh, um, assets or, or records, right, in the, in the platform, right? So how many listings that we had. So it was listings and traffic. Those were the two drivers for what then drove what we needed from an inventory, right, for the infrastructure that ran the site, right? So in our way that we were tying, and then that could then tie to profitability because then we sort of went through the whole thing. Our site is growing by X and Y, right? Uh, meaning uh, traffic and listings. That cascaded through what was required for inventory, which then represented our cost of goods sold, which then in turn affected profitability, right? So you tune in the middle that inventory up or down, just like you're describing, and all of a sudden my margins go commensurately in that tuning up and down, right? 
and you got the three parts of the equation. You got the demand with the uh, 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 consumers on one side or whatever it is. In the middle, you got the business trying to optimize that. And then the out on the other side is the uh, profitability or margin, you know, at the end of the day, right, for the business. Is that, I mean, that's, that, that we're, I think we're saying the same thing, right? I mean, that's sort of businesses, you know, and, and so my question in here is, to your point, no one had ever really connected those dots, even within eBay. And it was because people didn't have the view because part of it was finance, part of it was operations, part of it was kind of supply chain and they had never actually cohesively talked together to create that model. Yeah, and if you want, that, that's, that's why doing real inventory optimization is so difficult. You need yep. to know your supplier because you need to know, can I trust these guys? How long is it going to take to replenish? You need to know your supply chain so well to really understand what I would call the heartbeat of your supply chain. Is mm -hmm. it beating every day, every week, every month? How fast do you react to it? You need to understand the demand, the forecast, accuracy, the deviation of the demand. You need to know your client. Are they willing to wait? Because in the end, you could be very bad at forecasting, but still your client are fine to wait four weeks to get their goods. So you don't need safety stock, right? right? So you need to know all these kind of information. I'm not even, yeah, I should mention master data. I, I discussed profitability. So you need to go to the finance guy to understand what's the profitability of all these items. Can you imagine you need all of this information just to assess how much stock you need? This is so difficult. And this is really why, as a consultant, I always try to, to, to advise companies, let's just start to look at the forecast. Because if you just want to forecast demand, you don't need to know all of this about profitability, suppliers, and stuff. You can just start at, let's look at the client. Once you get this, usually you get a better view on the supply chain, and then you can come with inventory optimization. But right. for sure, I. Inventory optimization is more difficult than forecasting, but this is really where the big savings are. Because again, if you reduce your inventory by 20%, you make so much money. Correct, correct. But but I think the, if I were to say, just like you kind of pulling out sound bites, I think one of the things that you've uniquely connected here is the business driver behind the supply chain principles that you're teaching. Meaning profitability at the end of the day is the main driver for any business and profitability needs to be, you know, uh, accounted for in any supply chain planning. I mean, period. And it right? is and not that's, the case today. Yeah, which yeah, is shocking. I am, I am amazed. If you look, for example, back at forecasting, I, I've been advising now for, for, for a year that we should, when, when you compute forecast error, most of the supply chain just compute a percentage. I'm not going to go in detail, but if anyone's listening to this and say, we use Mappy, please just stop using Mappy. Just read any article that I've did or a book, just stop. But okay, let's move Mappy aside. Yeah. So people compute the forecast error as a percentage, but every single item in all the forecasting you do yep. is, is weighted equally. So basically, I'm always not giving in my class the same example. If you sell hammers and nails, well, a nail is worth a few cents. We do not care if you miss them by 20%. It's worth nothing. Whereas right. hammer, on the other hand, it's much more expensive. So you should really focus on that. Right. So to me, I'm really advising supply chain. You know what? When you compute your forecast accuracy metric, just try to weight the items based on the profitability or, I don't know, or value or criticability, anything like that, because you want your people to focus on the hammers not on the small piece that no one cares about. Yep. For inventory, so first in forecasting, I realized that no one is trying really to, to, to put more emphasis on what really matter. But then on inventory optimization is the same. No one looks really at profitability. Maybe we're gonna get a few extra meeting on some critical item, but in terms of service level, most of the time we're gonna say, you know what? The big item, we give 95%, 90%, 99%, but no one's thinking like, well, in the big item, we have some of them that are worth nothing. So we could right. just go lower and put some extra service level in those that are really so profitable, right? right? So maybe we should bring more money to, to the supply chain, bringing more, um, when I mean money, it's not putting cash in project, it's just asking supply chain people to pay more attention to what's worth money and what's not worth money. Right, right. Well, let's, let, 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 me, let me extend off that for a second. So you mentioned, you know, holistically looking at, you know, clearly the suppliers are a key factor in the equation and their ability to produce things in your supply chain, because those are constraints when we talk about lean and all the other stuff that, that we've heard about before in supply chain. But let me ask now, going back into natural resources and sustainability, how, I mean, that's a, that's a big topic too right now in supply chain, right? And there's, a, there's an impact if we start thinking about circular concepts and sustainability in the global supply chain. 
how is that or have you begun to incorporate that into even how you do forecasting and planning right in a way so for sure it's a very very important impact personally for example i in my own consultancy company i'm, I'm offsetting all my own co2 so i'm very happy to say that i already reached the 2050 uh, paris agreement because i'm already a co2 neutral okay now, in my inventory and forecasting model i do not take that into account so any project you do to make a supply chain more efficient by making the forecast more accurate, by doing lean project, by doing inventory optimization project, make your supply chain basically less, real, I mean, you're gonna consume less resources because obviously the more inaccurate you are, the more inventory you are, you have, the higher the probability that you're gonna get some obsolete inventory that's gonna need to be destroyed at the end of the day, right? Yep. Yep. So somehow I'm, I'm quite sure that if I manage to reduce the inventory of any supply chain by 20%, that's as much less obsolete stock that's going to need to be destroyed, right? Mm -hmm. So optimizing inventory is, is really helping to be uh, more sustainable for sure. Well, what about, let me ask this though. Um, so one thing is, and this may be a bit random, but um, you know, one of the things I've learned in this journey is that uh, like metals, right? Recycled metals. Um, you know, when you hear the term recycled metal, you immediately think, oh, it's used, uh, except <laughs> this is the part that blows me away. When you recycle metal and produce this metal uh, from, from, from recycled materials, the specifications the metal has to meet is the same as brand new metal. So in fact, it actually has a qu qualitatively and even quantitatively, it is the same as coming out of the ground, natural. But I don't think most people realize that. So where I'm headed with this is, do you see there's some there's some tuning around you know I'm calling it I'm starting to think about this term called a, a sustainability ratio right meaning if I'm consuming a bunch of stuff in my supply chain today 100% of that comes from generally new resources or natural resources so I'm I'm at 0% sustainability ratio but over time if I start incorporating either recycled metals, which meet my qualifications and requirements, and also uh, potentially reuse uh, materials, maybe that sustainability ratio goes up to 50%. I'm 50% recycled, 50% new materials. And then I start getting bonuses for that. So where I'm headed with this is, do you see that becoming, it's not exactly inventory planning or forecasting, but are you beginning to think about that in the context of inventory planning and forecasting. I have so much that I'm getting from you know, new materials and so much I'm getting from recycled or refurbished materials. I, I do not see it yet in my models and I have no one that asked me specifically to construct something for that. Yep. Yet for me, it's, it would be, when I, when I think in terms of model and in terms of optimization, it would be either a variable or an input like any other, or it would be a supplier like any other saying we can get some material from this supplier with this much lead time, we, this is that much reliable, we would get it from this other supplier, it would be recycled or not with this kind of reliability and so on. And it would just be the same. Now in terms, I, I, I know that they do um, with the, the fresh connection that I'm just using to teach inventory to students right now, they also do a, um, another version specifically for uh, sustainability. And for me, once you look at an optimization system, you can optimize for profit and you can optimize for CO2. And if you put, for example, CO2, you, you put a cost to it, then basically you just keep on uh, solving for profitability, including the fact that every single kilogram of CO2 is gonna cost you something. Yep. And for sure, when I said, okay, for inventory, you should keep more of what's really profitable. You can also take into account the risk of obsolescence saying, okay, maybe for those specific goods, if we have too much, um, basically, the cost to recycle them is so high that we really do not want to have so much, even if it's profitable. So maybe you should reduce even further inventory for these because it's cost so much to recycle it. So these kind of ideas can definitely go into inventory model. Yeah, for sure, uh, for sure. So, so now, kind of, you know, looking again a little bit in the details here, but now looking at, um, you know, especially the books that come out, and the, your most recent book being inventory optimization. You know, the models and simulations uh, that are out there, but. All of this requires data, right? All of this requires that you actually have data. So it's a very, uh, this is a little <laughs> open-ended question. I imagine when you go in and look at this, that oftentimes the data is not necessarily there. So what are the challenges you see? I mean, it's one thing to have a model, right? And, and understand a framework, but if I can't even get to the data, then I can't even use the model. So, so what are you seeing, you know, kind of commonality out there, just in even the initial technology assessment 
to even to even use a model like you're creating requires that you've got some technology in place and some data collection going on. And, and I'm pretty sure that's not the case generally. So I have two hats here. If I'm a, a book order or if I am a teacher at, at university of a training uh, professional, I start showing what you could possibly do with a model. Right. As a consultant, I do this differently. I first ask the question, what kind of data do you have? And then we'll see what we can do with it. Right. Because obviously, most of the time, as you said, you, you could potentially do an infinite amount of models, an infinite layers of refinement. But the first question is, what kind of data do you have? So I would never, as a consultant, say, here's a model. Now, please go and get the data to fit it. No, right. it's the other way around. What kind of data do you have? And then we'll right. see what you can do. And you know, I, for forecasting, for example, when I, when I say, okay, you know what, with machine learning, we can use any external driver. What, what's driving your demand? Many people will say, well, pricing is driving the demand. Makes total sense, right? Right. Then I ask them, okay, do you have the price of every single transaction you did over the last five years? Do you have the price of every single uh, SKU you, you think you're going to sell in the next six or eight months? People look at me like, uh, no, we don't have this data. Or it might take six months to get it. Right. Then I say, you know what? Let's leave this aside. We're going to just rely on some other data set to do forecasting, right? Otherwise, you never start to work on forecasting. Right. I, I also think to some extent that, you know, you, you get a model, you can go so far with the data you have. Maybe you could go for another 0 0.1% of extra accuracy if you could bring that much extra data, but I'm not really sure it's worth the time and the money for every single company to do that. So right. what I'm saying is more, you know what, let's look at what you have right now. Let's start with the first model and then we see if we want just to push it further by bringing new things, but later in a second stage. Yep. Are, there, are there common traits that you've seen in your experience when you're consulting with companies as to where they're at with that data, right? I mean, uh, um, the, the, the question I'm kind of getting to is, you know, is there, you know, common problems that you see, right, in the lack of data that could be addressed by some simple, you know, hey, if you did this, this, or this, right? If you put in, if you started, if you had a common data uh, model for your asset and asset tracking, that might help. Like, are there different steps that you kind of like a, a framework that you would apply to most companies and, you know, common, common problems that you see? Like, what are the top three problems you have with data collection in, in enterprises that you see today? Um, so I'm unfortunately not a 90 architect, so it's going to be very difficult for me to solve all the data issues supply chain in just one shot. Yeah. But usually I, I, I see the following. People in supply chain, most of them, not all of them, do not have a data culture. What, what I mean is that the, the, the driving culture in supply chain today, most of supply chain is Excel. Right. Excel is not a data tool. Excel is amazing if you want to do a small graph, a small pivot table, a bit of right. small stuff, perfect. But as soon as you have people starting to use Excel as some kind of a data tool and keep on data in Excel, it is first extremely messy. Mm -hmm. extremely slow, not reliable. And then every single person in the company starts to have its own personal data database in Excel. It's, right. it's a total mess. Right. If today, what I'm describing, if people listening to this say, okay, this is my case right now today, you need mm -hmm. to work on it. Because mm -hmm. if you are at this stage, it's going to be extremely difficult for you to do any quantitative model. And I remember in some companies, if you ask, for example, what's the historical demand or sales, you ask these to three different teams, you get three different answers. Yep. It's three different numbers. Yep. It's a nightmare. I, I, I mean, it's unbelievable that for a supply chain, I mean, every single supply chain is driven by demand, right? Yep. So yep. if you're not able even to have an aligned data set of demand, it's very, very difficult to good, good forecasting or good uh, inventory optimization. I think mm -hmm. I, I read once on the internet from, from another person on LinkedIn, well, bad data will beat any good forecasting model. This is right. totally true. Right. I, my, my advice there is you should really promote a data culture in supply chain. I'm not totally sure that there is like one thing to do and it will work by magic, no. But for example, explaining, teaching, training uh, supply chain people on using Python instead of Excel might be a way to show them that, well, look, you can easily manipulate so much data. So let's just take care of data because there is a use for it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I could, could, couldn't agree more. I think the characteristics of what a supply chain professional are changing in the sense that what you're saying now is they're, they're, they're expanding their view to become more general business experts, you know, and, and also they have to become technology, uh, you know, not, not experts, but they have to be uh, uh, 
they have to warm up to technology and like you said, data, right? And being a data-driven culture is, you know, thinking about things like, am I capturing the right data? Do I have the right data fields? You know, do I have the even data architecture set up in a way that I can do future uh, 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 modeling uh, queries, uh, you know, uh, that you're describing? Because unless the foundation set, like you said, it doesn't even matter if I've got different data sets, different data field descriptions, you know, I, I, you know first thing you gotta do is harmonize the data, right? Um, but it starts with the culture, starts with the thinking. Then one common thing that, that I find is, and you just, you also sort of intimated this is that everyone's using sort of some, their own personal version of Excel. Okay, that's not a common data framework, right? So one of the very first easy things to do, and even if you're using Excel, everyone use the same Excel spreadsheet on an Office 365 or Google Sheet. I mean, just if everyone was using the same sheet, you'd solve a lot of the you know, problems of, of everyone having their own personal sheet. I mean, that's one way to standardize. It's a way to think about, you got to move to a common platform that everyone's using to begin to, to force data harmonization, data standards, right? Um, that's, just, that's just the data model. That's not about the data entry, but that's just the data model, right? So you got to kind of get yourselves to using common tools or a common tool. Otherwise, you know, if you can't even get there, then it doesn't matter. I mean, five different tools will lead you to five different sets of data and five different results. Yeah, I, I remember that once I, I tried a joke with a, with a manager because the, the manager was always suspicious that we would have no need to get extra data. So, you know, in supply chain, most of supply chain only keep 36 months of historical data and try to do a forecast only using 36 historical months. I have no clue why 36 and not more or less, but it's not enough for sure. And, and people ask me from time to time, okay, but what happens if we keep some more, should we? And I'm always pushing for One day I set up a training and one of the people that was fine, like, hey, there is no use for that. I gave the same data set for everyone in the room, asking them to do the, the best possible forecast, except this guy. And I gave him less data than the rest of the team so that he could experience by himself what, what it is not to have enough data to do something. And it, it's, it's really striking. But then again, when you don't have it, you don't see the lack of it. Right. And it's not really sexy. And it's, I understand it's also very difficult for supply chain manager to say we're going to spend our time and, and, and resources on improving data, even though we don't exactly see what we're going to do with it. Correct. So my message is very simple. Data is the foundation brick of any quantitative thing you want to do in supply chain. And trust me, it's not the third millennium, the 21st century, you want to do quantitative things. And yep. if you do not do it, your competitor is going to do it for you. Yeah, correct. Correct, absolutely. So let's let's take a start to look a little bit forward here. So uh, you just had a book come out, right, in August of last year, and I think if I remember correctly, you were also even working on another one. Is that right? Is I mean, what's what's the publishing uh, a calendar look like for you? So um, now in April, we're gonna get the second edition of my um, data science for supply chain forecasting book out. I've been okay. working quite a lot on it. Actually, it's funny. Even my dad said, "But what's the point of a second edition?" I told him, "Like." You know what? I've, I've added 45 extra person of content. I've been counting words. Wow. Um, so I'm, I'm really, I really did my best to, I, I, I thought about every chapter from scratch again, thinking, what do I want to explain? How do I explain it? Can I go deeper in content? And as I'm able to simplify things further, the more I explain them, the, 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 the better I am at simplifying things, I can go deeper in content. I also added a, a, a chapter on neural network. I think people are going to love it. I mm -hmm. went back to history, you know, that the first neural network dates actually from the 50s, which mm -hmm. is amazing to find that, well, in 1950, someone was constricting a neural network. Okay, it right. didn't work so great back then, but it's very interesting. Um, beyond this, um, I am, I'm, I'm about to start a new project now because the, the, I am myself, I've been following, I think now, 20, 30 classes online on a platform like Coursera and EDX. I'm now discussing with them to put my own forecasting uh, class online. Um, so that that's my dream for 2021, and I'm I'm starting to work on it. So that would be the next uh, big thing. Right on. Okay. So so embracing uh, the the world of online education, democratizing it, getting your information out there. I mean, that's I'm, I'm going to come back to that in a second. But you also said something that I want to I want to I want to unpack a little bit because it's another term that's out there: neural network. Right. Um, I'm not going to let that work because it's like machine learning and AI. So so when you say neural network, I just want to, what do, what do you mean by neural network? So we can, you know, let people kind so of- So in this it. case, it's very easy because a neural network is a neural network. So anyone yeah. saying I'm doing neural network, for sure, there is absolutely no confusion on what it is. Um, so neural network is just a, a subtype of machine learning. 
I am not saying today that neural network is the future, it's always best or whatever. It's just one type of machine learning. It's not for sure the best, but it's one that has some, I mean, the name is sexy, right? Neural yeah, network. exactly. So everyone loves it, but it's not because it's sexy that it is the best. So I'm not really advocating for that. It's really good, but it might not be the best in every single situation. Right. Now, what I wanted to do in the second edition, I wanted to make it very simple. So I tried to tell a nice story of historically how things evolved. And I found a way to basically for people reading the book to do their own neural network, train it, optimize it in five or six lines of code, maybe three. So it's very easy. Like the math, I'm trying my best at making it simple. But in the end, even if you don't get every single math concept, you can do it for three lines of code on your computer. Right. And that's really the message of my book. Right? The, the whole book is about saying to the reader, you can do it yourself. Yep. Uh, and I believe that now with neural network, three lines of code, you have it. That's awesome. That's that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. So, so another way, as you just said, neural networks for you is a subset of machine learning. It's not quite artificial intelligence necessarily. It's not like this thing can think for itself, but it's a little bit more advanced than just a straight machine learning. It's got a little bit more connectivity. It can do a little bit more processing. And, you know, you, you, can, know, you can ask it more interesting questions. Machine learning is evolving extremely rapidly. Um, in 2020, we had an international forecasting competition. And many people, including me, were thinking that neural network would shine and would basically outshine any other model, including statistical model, uh, other machine learning model, and so on. And some people, you know, within neural network, you have different subtypes, and then you have different schools of people using a subtype, another subtype, and so on. Well, no, no, it was not the time for neural networks and they got totally uh, beaten by another type of machine learning model, which was already included. I mean, something very close to it was already included in my 2018 edition of the book, which is gradient boosting. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking, okay, gradient boosting will be beaten by neural network and now it's time for neural network. No, it was not the case. It's oh. gradient boosting is still beating neural network. When it is about supply chain forecasting, right? But right. this is the case today. In five years, we might have a new type of neural network that's going to do even better. Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I, I, I mean, I think, I think right now, five years from now is not going to be, I mean, it's sort of like autonomous cars, right? I mean, it's, it's you, you know, people didn't realize how fast that was going to be coming. And we're now seeing cars basically drive themselves, right? I mean, it's like once this genie cuts out of the bottle, it's going to move fast, right? Things are going to get automated very quickly. It's super exciting. So, so, so what I was going to ask you though, Kind of looking forward a little bit because you're in, you know, you're in the in the guts of supply chain forecasting is kind of the ultimate forecasting or ultimate supply chain dream, and we've talked a lot about technology and where it's going. So let me ask you a little bit of the for you know look forward a little bit. Like what do you what do you see changing supply chain? Like we're in this definite change, right? Like call supply chain version one has been the last you know since 1960 or 70 whenever the term came out. We're definitely in an era that is a new version of supply chain. It's going to be driven by technology. It's going to be driven by automation. What do you see from your perspective as the big themes of trends that are happening in supply chain in the next five to seven years, right? Across the board, besides just forecasting. It's, it's an extremely difficult question for me. I have to say, I am spending my time thinking about forecasting and so on, making predictions, but I'm not so much into this kind of prediction because I, I don't want that in 10 years, someone gets this podcast and well, Nicolas said something that is absolutely wrong. So actually what I'm, I'm, I'm trying to focus on myself when I look at the long-term is first to stay myself very into everything that's happening in my own field of inventory and forecasting and trying to be extremely open to any new idea. You know, right. when someone comes up with a new model, with a new technique, with a new anything, I'm trying to stay as open as I can to anything that's new. Because when I look at generation after generation, when machine learning started to rise in 2015, many people that were the best at using old school statistical model said, I've witnessed that person and said, like, nothing can beat statistical model. Nothing ever could do that. And they basically stick to it and they couldn't move to the new technology. So today, and it's also what I try to do in the book, I'm, I'm not saying, you know what, this very specific thing is going to be the best as of now and in the future. No, I'm trying to show methodology and approach so that you keep a scientific mindset of trying out new things and seeing what works for you and what doesn't. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best actually to be extremely good at predicting what's going on in inventory and forecasting fields in terms of model, trying to see where we should go in terms of forecasting, where we should go in terms of inventory optimization for the next five, 10 years. Now, in general, whole supply chain are going to evolve. 
I would not answer such a uh, such a thing. Could you imagine if we had asked this question early 2019, saying everything's going to stay stable, no world pandemic will ever happen, and then boom? Right, right. So, well, so funny enough, I'm going to say, in a way, you kind of did answer the question because your prediction in there is that there's a philosophical change in flight, which is supply chain professionals have to begun, have to adapt to the new normal that change is happening all the time, right? That's not the same. And, and that's professional, you know, people listening need to understand that even in, in all business, right? Our, our lives are changing, right? To your point, you know, the next 10 years, you know, when you think about everything that's going on in the world, you know, it's going to be radically different from where it is today. The, the pace of change in our lives yeah, is so dramatic. You know, the, the story I want to, or the advice I have is not trying to say what's, how the world is going to be in five or 10 years, because basically you have very low, low likelihood to be able to predict that. Instead, right. you should ask the question, how do I personally stay on the move and learn new things and be open to learning new ideas? You know, I think in 2016 and 17, I spent 700 hours doing online training to, to get this Python expertise and it, it changed my life. But was I able to predict when I started to learn Python that it would lead me all this way? No, but I just stayed open and said, okay, some people are talking about it. it seems interesting. I'm going to go there. Yeah. And even today, I'm not trying to predict what's going on in five to 10 years. Instead, I'm just trying to stay open, discussing with many very interesting and insightful people like you trying to discuss, okay, what's happening? Staying open to that. I think this is what matters to stay open, to learn new things, rather trying to stick to, okay, this is exactly what's going to happen. So I'm going to go in this direction. So you remind me of a phrase that, 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 that's an amalgamation of a lot of them, which is, uh, I'll throw it out to you here is, you know, the student wants to become the master and the master wants to remain a student. Perfect. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's one of these things that I think is, is, is very apropos today is you have to learn that you're always going to be a student. You always need to be learning. You always, I mean, things are changing so rapidly. We're discovering so much that that's just a, that's normal now. Right. It, it, and you know, after writing this whole book, I wrote inventory and, and I, I cannot quote you exactly how I end the book, but basically I, I'm saying something like, no, I know that I know nothing. Right. And that's really what matters to stay under in front of a supply chain, which is a huge living organism, with all these people moving in every single direction, you want to learn about it. You need yep. to learn about it and to see how other people do. It's If you meet someone that tells you, I know everything there is to know about inventory, I know everything there is to know about data science. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just like, yeah, exactly. Well, listen, I I, I want to kind of wind up here, be conscious of your time. Um, I mean, we could go like, I, I, I always know these things. <laughs> It's funny, you know, people try to do 20 minute podcasts. I can barely do 60 minutes with the most people I've had because it's like you can just go into so many different things. So it's been such a pleasure to have you here. It's been so much fun. Definitely would love to have you back and stay in touch. And, you know, congratulations on the books too. I mean, it's it's really exciting to see what you're doing and, and what you're kind of stimulating out there in conversation. I mean, it's, it's just exciting. So thank you so much. for Thank that. you, Richard. This is Richard Donaldson. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments about the episode or topics in supply chain you'd like us to explore, We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at supplychainnext at request.com. And while you're at it, why not check out the Request platform at supplychain.request.com. Request allows you to manage the full asset lifecycle in the cloud, collaborating with your entire value network to buy, manage, and sell your assets. Find out more at www.request.com. <laughs>